0: Welcome to another compelling episode of the Help Form podcast, where we explore the fascinating stories and insightful experiences of individuals shaping the world around them. Today, we're privileged to explore the inspiring journey and invaluable contributions of a remarkable individual, Kelebohile Mojananga, a dedicated clinical psychologist and a driving force in reshaping mental health policies in South Africa. Join us as we uncover Kalebuchile's journey, starting from her roots in the tight knit mining town of Valkom in the Free State. We unpack her adaptive, unwavering commitment to making a positive impact in the mental health sector. We discover how her early encounters, including offering guidance to peers in Drum magazine, shaped her conviction to pursue psychology, propelling her towards her current roles as a clinical psychologist, mental health consultant, and policy influencer. Welcome to the Health for Zanzi podcast, Lebo. It is so great to have you with us. I'm so excited to be able to talk to you, to share a bit of your story and your journey within the healthcare sector. Firstly, just more
1: about you, where you grew up, welcome. Thank you so much for having me, Dawn. I'm really happy to be a part of the platform.
0: We want to get to know the woman, you know, behind all of the amazing work that you're doing. I understand that you grew up in Valcom in the
1: Free State. Tell us more about your early childhood and growing up years. Yeah, I did grow up in the Free State in a town called Valcom. It's actually a mining town. So most of our parents end up becoming teachers or police officers or in mining. It was a pretty close-knit small town. There's no traffic lights, only traffic circles. But life there was actually quite good in a sense that, you know, I was raised by a single parent and my mom did quite a lot to try and make sure that, you know, I get a good education. So she's always been big on education because of her profession. And as a result, my mom used to get promotions in different places. So I moved around quite a lot, but in and around Balcom. So that was my childhood. I've been to like seven different schools. The longest I've been in one school, I think it's like four years. So in my early years, I was forced to make friends quite quickly because I was always the new kid. So I suppose in doing that, I really became social. I really just interacted with people from different social backgrounds, different communities. And in some ways, I used to hate being the new child, but I look back and I'm quite grateful because it allowed me to be quite open-minded to lies and changes and adapting to that. It sounds like your mother was obviously a very role in your upbringing
0: um, as a single parent, but more so in your thinking around life and just how you kind of went through it. So amazing to hear Is there anything specific that she would say or do that you can kind of recall and say, hey,
1: I can hear my mom's voice (laughs) in this moment. (laughs) Share some of that with us. I was a very innovative child growing up. I used to have a lot of ideas about a lot of things. So there's this specific time where there was a competition in SABC 2, I think. And the competition is around write a short story and then your short story wins. Then they'll turn your short story into a film. So I remember telling my mom about this. I'm like, yes, mom, there's this competition, but I read it wrong. So I thought I'm supposed to make a film. Not the fact that's to write one. So I tell my mom. And my mom is like, But where are you gonna get actors? And how are you gonna record this thing? And I'm just like, No, mom, like it can happen. And now I'm writing scripts already. I have the story in my And I remember my mom just saying to me, which she still says to me until this day when I come home with like a big crazy idea. And she's just like, okay, go for it. Let's see. And when she says, let's see, like, I always know I have to prove (laughs) that it's not a waste of time, a waste of energy. So I remember her still say that, let's see. But I wrote script. I got kids from the neighborhood. I think I was like around grade three. So I'm about around nine. So I'm writing scripts, I'm getting people, the community, my friends from school as well to come through. And we actually rehearsed scenes and lines. And then I got my mom's friend to borrow me a camcorder to quote the whole thing. And I remember being stuck at the camcorder part. And it's like, my mom is still like, Oh, let's see. And I'm like, No, 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 it's gonna be a production. And I actually did it, but I didn't submit it because it was not what they were looking for. But my mom has always been that person, like she'll hear my crazy ideas and then she'll just say let's see so even today i suppose that's what kept me just going and even i remember with psychology you need a master's degree to become a psychologist and at Vits, they take like 11 people a year for the course and i remember most people telling me but you're too young you know they take a much older and mature crowd. And I told my mom, she's like, "Mm -mm, you've done more. So let's see, go to those interviews. And I did. And I got in first time round. So it's that word where I know nothing is too crazy because my mom just says, okay, let's see. And then, yeah, I just get around doing it. I love that she's just
0: your constant motivator, you know, never deterring you. Let's go for it. You know, that's really great. And you decided on this career in psychology quite early on. In grade six, you mentioned that you started advising teens with their teenage problems in drum magazine, and you kind of understood that helping your peers is something that felt good to you. Tell us more about this decision and this
1: time period when you're like, yeah, this is definitely where I see myself going. I used to be an avid reader of magazines. So Drum Magazine was one of the magazines I used to read, including people. And there's always sections on advice columns and people just giving advice. And I remember drum magazine advertised they're looking for teenagers to do that. So at the time he was a very like ambitious little person. So I remember saying to my mom, I'd like to advise teens and then we wrote in and then they got back to me and they were like, Okay. So every, I think every two weeks they'd send me like synopsis from the teens who, who write into the magazine and they'd put my little face there. And then I'd always give advice to the kid. And I actually found it so cool that to see myself and, uh, and hear those kind of problems and go like, hey, I also think about these things and these are the questions I also have about life. So then I researched if there's a career in that way. Because I remember then in grade seven, I took part in like some pageant. And they asked, what do you want to be when you grow up? And I remember having to go look what I want to be. And I realized that, yeah, hang on, I want to advise people. What's that called? And then, yeah, psychology. My mom told me about psychology. And yeah, that's how I ended up deciding before even high school that when I'm done, I'm going to become a psychologist.
0: What an amazing journey, I'm, I'm like in awe, like (laughs) really, like this drive that you've had from a very young age to just go, go, go and go and kind of just understanding what your purpose is very early on. And that's absolutely just amazing to hear and to be able to share with our listeners. I would like to get back, you know, just come closer to what you're doing at the moment and just going through a little bit of your journey within psychology and specifically as a clinical psychologist and mental health consultant. What is, what has your career been like? Tell us about your studies and then stepping into your first job and also just a bit of your career.
1: It's been quite a journey and full of surprises, I will say, because as much as I knew from a young age, I wanted to be a psychologist. I didn't know how long it takes to be a psychologist. So it was quite a, a shock to the system when I got to varsity and I thought, oh, I just need to do my degree. So I studied at Bits University. So that's where I did my BA general. And psychology was one of my majors, including media studies. I did not know how long it takes to qualify. I just thought I just needed a degree. And three years, then I'm going to be a psychologist and, and be on my way giving advice. But actually, I found out that do your undergrad but also you do your honors and honors again it's a very competitive stream to get into because at bits of the time the us they're taking the top 80 students into the honors class and that's only based on marks and already that's anxiety provoking around will I ever get to be a psychologist yeah when I got in did my one-year honors and then we also then find out master's is two years and you're like what what with other subjects it's one or one other course it's one year but with us it's two years and they take 11 students a year at that, at that time so again it, it was just a, another surprise or another you know like it felt like an easter egg hunt where there's a surprise at each turn um, but again I didn't take a gap year so I did my matric went straight into varsity so by the time I was done with honors, four years later, I was like, okay, to a psychologists, they usually take much more mature people who've been through life, which actually makes perfect sense because of there's a lot of emotional intelligence required in the career. I remember a lot of people saying, yeah, but just go to interviews just to get a taste of what it's like to go through selections. So at the time, I was a bit discouraged, but again, my mom would be like, you know, let's go, let's see. And I tried and I got in first time. So I didn't take any break in between my studies. So the journey to becoming a psychologist was that three years, undergrad, one year honors, two years masters, and then you have to do in the seventh years more like your community service that you do after you've passed your board exam. So there's a lot of um, goal posts that you need to kind of like aim towards to finally get to the end so I was the youngest in my class um, at the time as well where again this they don't just kick on, pers- uh, on, on marks but also personality so it was quite a long journey in the short of it uh, in realizing how many milestones you need to achieve to get to it um, however it's been the most fulfilling journey of my life because I got to learn so much of myself while pursuing this career. You know, I started therapy um, second year reading, um, which also helped in in selections because most of the criteria is around self-awareness. So I was put in situations where I, I had to be self-aware and self-reflective about a lot of things that I've gone through growing up. So it it wasn't an easy journey in terms of just linear, but I am grateful that you know, even as young as I am, I just still manage to to be able to get to a point where I can practice in this profession and help people in the best way I can, regardless of my age or background yeah, or gender. I,
0: no, definitely. I think, you know, I've I haven't spoken to um, many psychologists. I mean, all of this is still very new to me as a podcast host for this um, publication. Um, and it's so interesting just to listen to your journey and and what it's been like and kind of getting to understand more of what it takes, what goes into it, um, for the professional themselves. Um, and that's, mm-hmm. that's one aspect that I haven't really read up on much or, or seen a lot of people talk about. So so thank you so much for sharing that. Um, I, and then again, just talking about your day-to-day work life is like for you. The challenges that you encounter, not going into too many details, I guess. How do you promote
1: better health, mental health in the workplace? For example, if you are staging about pursuing a career in psychology. So I play three different roles in my capacity as a clinical psychologist. So one of the roles that I play is that I work for an NGO called the Smile Foundation. So the Smile Foundation is a foundation that does cleft lip and palate surgeries. So they sponsor the surgeries for children born with cleft lip and palate. And what I do is more supportive work for the parents before the kiddies go into surgery and post-surgery, you know, because there's a lot of anxieties that come with sending a little one into surgery when they're still so young. So the kids at that age, because they're around six months, four months for some they might not really have a connection of the process, but the anxiety lies mostly with the parents. Is my child going to be okay? What is hip, lip, and palate? Is there something wrong with my child? So I do all the supportive work with the parents, particularly around what it means and how to best support their kids, but also how to any support around them so they're able to support their children during this journey. So My capacity is at a support therapeutic process with them. So it's quite fulfilling because really you meet moms who sometimes blame themselves from the way their children were born, but you find that it isn't their fault and it's genetic and there's nothing much you can do about genetics. So, you know, it's a very fulfilling role in helping moms connect and bond with their kids. Just to help me in doing this work, I did a parent-infant psychotherapy observations where I had to learn how to help parents connect with their little infants just over and above my qualification. So it's been quite fulfilling work in aiding that bond, even when parents don't feel good enough or don't feel capable to walk the journey with their children, particularly because sometimes not just one surgery sometimes about nine, 10 surgeries. So I work with the Smile Foundation during that and, and it really has been quite fulfilling work. And then my other capacity then private practice where I run my own practice in Parkhurst where I see both children for play therapy, but I also see adults. So there again, more supportive therapeutic role. With my more adult patients, which could be anything from psychosocial stresses to life-changing circumstances like loss or um, fertility or childhood trauma and processing. So that's my capacity with the adults. But with children, it's more play therapy because they don't have the language yet to articulate how they're feeling. So they're quite behavioral in how they express distress. So, pay therapy is one of the ways to help them cope with this distress, but also be able to equip them with the tools to manage and regulate their emotions. So, that's the kind of work I do with the kiddies at my private practice. But also, my third capacity is just helping out with other practices, whether it has to do with family therapy. I have a co-therapist, a colleague of mine, when we do Therapy for families or group therapy, whether it's bereavement or an adolescent support group. So, yeah, there's a lot that I do in a nutshell, all in ways that are manageable and helpful for the community I serve currently, which is in Johannesburg. Again, I'm so happy
0: to be able to connect with you, to share your story, to celebrate you for the amazing work you're doing. Thank you so much for your continuous contributions within the healthcare sector within South Africa. Now, with your diverse background, you've just mentioned all of the aspects and areas where you work in. How do you see the intersection between clinical psychology and corporate mental health and you know, policy shaping the future for mental health care? Let's talk about the South
1: African context and then you can maybe make references to global practices if that's possible. I mean, that's a very important question because without policy, there's not much we can do with the skills that we have. South Africa in general has great mental health policies in place. You know, I think one of the things I like to share with people is that, you know, there's quite a negative view around public health, particularly. But actually, public health does a lot for mental health because with private hospitals, you find that they don't have a psychiatric unit. Unless you go to a specialized hospital that deals with psychiatry issues. However, if you're going to a normal private institution you'd find that you know you have to pay for each and every medical profession now you consult so I ask you do you want to see a psychologist do you want to see a social work do you want to see an OT this is a, the mostly in the private sector however in the public sector you find that as soon as you admit it into public there's a whole lot of specialists that you have to see before you get discharged so automatically you're going to see a psychologist automatically you're going to see a psychiatrist, automatically you're going to see an OT in the social work. And it's a more of a multidisciplinary team that helps the patient. So with policies, how they become very important in that context is that with private care, there's no such thing as involuntary admission. So as a patient, you have to consent to being admit it but you find that with mental health patients sometimes you don't have the capacity to compensate because your mental state is compromised whether it's psychosis schizophrenia sometimes it comes psychotic feature so whatever the spectrum you might be on in terms of psychiatric illnesses instead if you're not in a position to take that decision on yourself your next of kin can take the decision for your mental health treatment whereas In private, you can say, no, I don't want the treatment. Whether you're in the right frame of mind or mental capacity to make the decision, you can't be forced into admission. However, instead, it's your next of kin that says, no, this person should be admitted. And then with involuntary admission or assisted admissions, that means that you will get the care that you need and you will only be discharged once you're okay and your mental health has recovered and you've seen all these professionals not whether you have an option to see them or not but you will okay okay so yeah there's a very powerful intersection between policy and mental health because those are the things that govern all mental health professions to be able to work in a in an ethical way but in a way that's holistic to the healing of the patient so so far we do have quite good mental health policies but where and the role that I'd like to occupy in the future is around what influences those policies, because some of them work in certain instances and some don't. And having had field experience, it's very important to feedback and give feedback to the existing policies. So how do we improve these policies to improve the mental health of the people of South Africa? So that's kind of the role I play in in terms of just what analyzing what's happening and even on a global scale where I'm part of the World Youth Alliance we work with the UN closely to help promote and advocate for human dignity human rights and anything doesn't always work in the best interest of our patients so yeah um, the real decision makers are the policy makers and it lasts it, it creates a lasting legacy to making sure that Everybody gets good mental health care, whether in private or in state.
0: Thanks so much for this for this insight. Um, really great to be able to just get a broader perspective on it, um, and listen to someone that's in the sector that kind of understands all aspects of it. So thank you so much for that, Lebo. So just again, I think it's always important to kind of keep our audience in mind and to anyone who's listening who might you know be taking the step to the betterment of their mental health or they're aware that maybe there's something that they need to be um, thinking about around it what advice would you give you know individuals um, wanting to take on their own journey with their own mental health and then also just for people professionals like yourself within the sector so just both sides of it just to create a broad understanding of it based on your experiences and also the evolving landscape of mental health awareness and care. Thanks.
1: I think that's a very important question and every time how I answer it is by saying you know what you'll never regret investing in yourself. You know mental health is more just about there's a crisis going on and I need to cope with the crisis but actually it's about who am I and how has my past shaped the person that I am why do I do certain things the way that I do why do I think the way that I do you know sometimes we notice patterns in our lives where you know you see that you date the same kind of guy or you end up in the same kind of conflict with people and incidental or people hate you but you know therapy allows the platform for self-awareness to say hang on but this is a pattern in my life yes people for example maybe betray me or it's very hard for me to sustain personal relationships. So those questions that you might have about yourself where you realize the certain patterns are good enough reasons to go to therapy. So it's not about feeling or being diagnosed with clinical depression or, or clinical anxiety, but it's about being curious about yourself. And that's the best investment because therapy is not about changing your circumstance, but it's about helping you cope with the circumstances that you have and helping you avoid certain things that maybe are a a pattern in your life. So once you take the journey or the step to invest in yourself, you are able to make different decisions about your life and saying, hang on, I'm doing that thing again, where I always do this, or I'm in this situation again, that this happens. And having that self-awareness helps you or informs you to like, okay, let me do something different, you know? So, um, it's like, you know, sometimes you go to those yearly checkups with our gynees or GPs, but I'm always like, why can't we do that with our mental health? Why do we have to wait when we already are depressed or we're feeling suicidal? And yeah, for some people it is a crisis and it gets there, but there's also preventative care in mental health, which I think it's a, it's a very good investment where Because you've already started to be curious about yourself, you can actually avoid certain triggers or patterns from repeating in your life, particularly when you're going to start a new job or you're moving into a new country or you're about to become a parent. Those big life milestones actually can trigger a lot about certain unprocessed things. So being proactive and being in therapy is always quite helpful. So I'd advise people to take that step and invest in their mental health by yeah, investing the journey to self-awareness because you'll never regret it. So that's the part of just the person who's listening and contemplating, starting therapy. And then with regards to mental health professionals, uh, can you please just repeat in which way do you mean the question? What advice would you
0: give to individuals looking to enter the field of mental health, um, you know, Practice, psychology, all of that, consulting, policy advocacy, just based on your experience when it comes to this kind of evolving landscape
1: of mental health or mental awareness and care. So for the people thinking and considering a career in mental health, um, I think it's also very important to think about investing your own mental health first. Can't help other people with their mental health if you haven't done any check-ins with your own mental health. So it is very important if you're thinking about taking the step to also start your journey in therapy, just so that you know you're okay enough to take on this journey, because it's quite an emotional journey to be a mental health practitioner. You know, you meet a lot of different people with a lot of different traumas, and some of them can even trigger your own staff. And if you haven't worked on your own staff, it's going to be a very challenging profession to actually take on. So I think the first step is investing in your own mental health before you take on the decision of following this career path. And secondly, patience. Earlier on in the interview, I shared how it took it takes about seven years, but that's record time in terms of should everything go accordingly. But like I mentioned, with masters, they take about 11 adverts. I think in other universities, some take six, some take eight. So you might not get in the first round of master selection, right? So it means that you'll have to be patient enough to know that, okay, next year I'll try again, I'll try again until your turn comes. So it's one of those things that just be prepared that it is a journey of self-discovery firstly, but secondly, of an academic journey as well of waiting for some people. So I think, yeah, just have that in mind and do your research about What kinds of psychologists are out there? It's not just clinical. I'm a clinical psychologist, but they're educational psychologists. They are counseling psychologists. They are um, industrial psychologists. So just also just do research around what speaks more to you and the work that you're trying to do in your community and then take it from there.
0: Very sound advice, and I really appreciate your insights on it again. Um, and then just in terms of your own personal journey and where you'd like to grow to and your business, all of the other work that you're doing, um, what do you see
1: um, in the next five to 10 years, inshallah? Okay, so I am in next year will be starting my journey in terms of my PhD. And part of the reason I want to go into um, completing my PhD in a personal capacity is to also start to do work as a thought leader in, in mental health. Like I said, in policy work, because with policy work as a clinician, I have practical experience and on the ground experience around what it is to deal with different kinds of clinical presentations, but with um, policy work you has to kind of know the management side of things and you have to be in, insightful on you know what South Africa is like you know because different countries have different types of uh, mental health presentations or prevalence right because we do know that South Africa is a, quite a traumatized country with our background um, in terms of apartheid and having to heal from that so I think um, becoming a thought leader, you have to have qualifications to back it up and um, with the clinical experience I have, I think I want to grow more and and do my PhD so I can end up doing more uh, uh, policy related work to influence mental health thinking and policies within our country. So that's where I see myself growing in the next 10 to 5 years, 5 to 10 years
0: absolutely amazing and i can't wait to see your journey and see how you're growing and just follow you um throughout it so thank you so much once again for your time it has been absolutely amazing just any last piece of advice that you have for anyone um that you'd like to share with our listener um and then just yeah thanks thanks
1: so much ah thank you so much for having me join it was really a pleasure Talking to you, it's just like we're just having a conversation over tea. So <laughs> it was really great. Um, but just last words, I think just for everybody to know that, you know, we are all patients in our own ways. We all, I think Freud says that, that we are all patients. And what that means is that no one is above taking uh, the root of self awareness and self discovery in the therapy space. And if we can all understand that there's always something to improve on, learn on, develop, learn and unlearn. I think we'll be a better we'll be better friends, better wives, better sisters, better mothers, because we are curious about who we are and um and yeah, our impact in the world, our impact to people close to us and those not close to us. So thanks so much for your time. It's been an absolute pleasure to talk to you. I think as as we
0: wrap up, I just want to ask you, you know, to give our listener of uh, Health form Zanzi um, podcast, just some general advice around their journeys with mental health. Um, and, yeah, so that it doesn't, that's a, such a daunting thing to do and take on how people see it, at least some of the people I talk to. So just, you know, some advice overall would be much appreciated. Thanks.
1: Okay. No, I, I, I suppose it's, it's a great way to close this show. And just the advice that I have is that, you know what, um, Freud says that we are all patients. And what that means is that we all have things that we need to work on for ourselves. It doesn't necessarily take a clinical diagnosis for you to um, call a psychologist or psychiatrist where there's a crisis, maybe you're already clinically depressed or or have anxiety. And yes, of course, those are treatable mental kind of issues as well. But I think it's not just about that. It's about the fact that we can continue to work on ourselves because there is something to work on, whether it's our self-awareness. Why is it that in my life, I tend to date the same kind of person, guy or girl? why is it in my life maybe that I can't maintain or sustain any interpersonal relationships with friends or family? You know, there are certain questions that we're curious about once we start to see, hang on, this is a pattern. So seeking out a therapist is also about trying to answer those questions about yourself. Because some things we think they're incidental, some things we think they're generational curses, but actually you're a therapy session away from just getting to understand yourself a bit better and some things we do unconsciously we don't think they're patterns we don't think they have uh, consequences but you find that in the workplace you're struggling to to keep a job or you're finding that you know in life gets overwhelming in times and you withdraw socially or you go through moments of just not wanting to be around people and then it ends up being a season, then it ends up being your life, you know. So such things are preventable and there are preventative measures in mental health. Mental health is not just a service once things have gone bad or things don't make sense, but it can be a, a preventative intervention to say, hang on, you know, I think there are things I need to work on or I think there are things that I need to ask about my childhood and figure out about you know, where I'm headed. So in a nutshell, the advice I have is that always look at yourself as willing to grow and allow yourself room for growth. And therapy allows that through providing a mirror that flicks back some sense of self-awareness so that you're able to act differently in otherwise regular situations where you'd react in a different way but that you've noticed that doesn't actually serve you, serve your job, serve your family, serve your kids. So that's my advice. We're all patients, and there's always something you can learn about yourself to be a better friend, a better lover, a better wife, husband, a better daughter, son, just a better human being for society, I suppose. Wow.
0: What an amazing story. Through her dedication, unwavering determination, and profound insights, Kelebo stands as an advocate bridging the gap between practical care and policy shaping. Her words ring true for anyone considering a path in psychology, emphasizing the importance of self-investment. And that's a wrap. Tune in next time for more engaging stories and insightful conversations. Remember you can also read more on Kilebochile's journey by visiting ww.houthformzanzi.co.za. From me Donumdu, our technical producer meeting in and the rest of the hashtag TeamFoodFormZanzi. Bye for now.